morning, and we're going to go through the book of Hebrews. And so as we begin, let us start with a prayer. Almighty God and most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before your majesty, asking you from the bottom of our hearts that the seed of your word now sown among us may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither nor the thorny cares of this life choke it, but that a seed sown in good ground, it may bring forth 30, 60, or a hundredfold as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. Amen. Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. We'll be reading the first four verses. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. If you have a pew Bible that you can find in front of you in your chair, you can find that on page 941. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Please rise for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. Polymeros, Kai, Polytropos, Palai, Hatheos, Lalesas, Tois, Patrasin, and Tois, Prophetes. These are the opening words of the letter to the Hebrew in Koine Greek. Now, if you took out the articles, meaning the us and the thes, it would, it would sound like this. Polymeros, Meros, Polytropos, Palai, Theos, Lalesas, Patrasin, Prophetes. There is an alliteration that is happening. There is a Polymeros, Polytropos, Palai, Patrasin, Prophetas, and in the middle is Theos, Lalesas. And Theos is God, Lalesas is spoke. So in the middle of this alliteration with the P or the Pi sounds, there is Theos, Lalesas, which means God spoke. So there is an alliteration with the Pi's, and then in the middle, God spoke. That's how this book begins. It begins this way. It might suggest that this was actually spoken and it was transcribed into the letter to the Hebrews. It might have even been a sermon. But we know even by this first sentence and the exact Koine Greek words that were used, that this person was highly educated. There are alliterations and allusions to Philo's writings. 
He knew how to mix poetic rhythm with prose and even used a chiastic structure from verses 1 through 4. Chiasm is a poetic structure where you would have, let's say, a line, and we'll call this line A. And then we have a next line. The next line of that poem is B. The next line would be the climax of this poem, C. And then following, you go back down to B and then back and finish with A. So it would be A, B, C, B, A. That's a chiasm. And this poetic structure is used throughout the Bible. It's to do a lot of things, but it's to highlight C, the middle climax portion, but it's also to show the parallels of what we might not have thought to be parallels before. That's the chiasm. And he would use this chiastic structure in the preamble from verses 1 to 4. He would start out with the fathers and prophets and close out with the angels. In verse 2 and 3, it's about the characteristics of the sun. And in the center, which we would call see the climax, it would climax on the radiance and glory of God being the sun himself. Now, this is just a very, very brief overview of what we have read. But even if we took these verses from a bird's eye view from what I just said, you would notice that what's going to follow afterwards is going to be quite the ride. The first four verses are already densely packed with these pregnant statements that are just waiting to be unpacked. So who wrote Hebrews? Well, we don't know for sure. In a standard opening of a letter or an epistle, one would introduce themselves to the recipients of the letter. For instance, the letter to the Ephesians, it would open this way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from, our, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And there you have the sender, the recipient, and the greetings. In Hebrews, there is no such opening or address. And so the author of Hebrews is unknown. Different scholars have suggested different people like Paul or Barnabas, Silas, Apollos, Luke, Philip, Priscilla, Aquila, and even Clement of Rome. However, many people don't think it's the Apostle Paul because of chapter 2, verse 3. The confirmation of Christ's message was given by others. Paul would insist in Galatians 1.12 that he got it directly from God and not man. That being said, the in-depth knowledge of the Old Testament and the references from the Septuagint, including his plans to travel and what seems to be an intimate knowledge of Timothy in verse uh, 23 of chapter 13, would have us hard-pressed to preclude Paul from being a possible author of this letter or sermon. That being all said, in the end, I think it would be best to accept the anonymity of the authorship of this letter. We know ultimately, though, that the author was the Holy Spirit. Now, concerning the dating of the letter, because of this present tense in regards to the Levitical priesthood that we see throughout the letter, the sacrificial system that is also used in notation. Also, Timothy in chapter 23 that I just mentioned had just been released from prison. So that would suggest that the, the timing of this letter was written before the destruction of the temple, which would be 70 AD. So that means this letter was probably written around AD 67 to 69. 
The reason why this letter is called Hebrews is because in the early manuscripts, there is a traditional stamp that you would put on the copies of the scrolls. And the stamp that you would put on top of this scroll would be to the Hebrews. So within the epistle, however, there is no recipient given. We don't know exactly for sure, but tradition states that this is a letter to the Hebrews. That's just the context really briefly. I just wanted to give it to you because the overarching theme is what's important. What is the overarching theme of Hebrews? And it's given to us in these four verses of the epistle. This letter is about the supremacy of Christ. Jesus Christ is greater than any Old Testament character. He is superior to any Old Testament ceremony or institution. Jesus Christ is better than any Old Testament sacrifice. He is preeminent. His life, his death, and resurrection make him supreme to all. Not only that, but because of the nature of who he is, he is the final. Not he is final. He is the final. And the writer of Hebrews wastes no time in establishing this point because the letter begins with God having spoken. He makes no effort to demonstrate how he does this. He just simply asserts that God speaks. But we also know this to be true. God speaks because all creation speaks. In Psalm 19, let me just read you the first few verses. In Psalm 19, 19 it says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat." Now, Psalm 19 is talking about creation speaking. When you meditate on that, how can something, quote-unquote, speak unless words were given to it? God has spoken creation into existence, and now creation declares his glory. You think about a baby. How does a baby learn his or her first words. They don't just come up with it. They don't all of a sudden speak in sentences and speak in a language. You speak to the child. The child understands and speaks back. And this is what Psalm 19 is saying. All of creation is speaking and declaring God's glory. How does it know how to speak unless words were given to it? But the speaking Hebrews is talking about goes even beyond the speaking of nature. It's talking about a special revelation. God has spoken in the past, and it says in verse 1, in many times and many ways. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll be able to fill in the details. There were visions, angelic revelations, words from the prophets, signs and events that would happen surrounding all of them. But the most standout of these revelations that we have been given 
were from the prophets. It was the prophets that were able to say, thus says the Lord. Now, when you're able to say, thus says the Lord, there's a unique authority and office that has been given to you. And the prophets that has been given, that had been given this office, made them hated and even martyred for their message. But throughout the millennia, this message was kept and regarded as sacred. But what they said, however, was ultimately incomplete because everything that they were saying was pointing to something. It was paving a way for someone. This was all done in the past to give way to something better, something complete. Finally, a complete revelation. That's just verse 1. In verse 2, it says, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Last days is from the word eschatos, or eschaton, which points to the finality of the speaking, the final days. It's talking about the finality of this speaking. So God has spoken, and finally and ultimately, he has spoken to us by his Son. He is the finest of the prophets, and they do not stand in comparison with the Son as a means of revelation. Paul understood this concept in 1 Corinthians 13 when he said that when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. This is what it all pointed to. And now what everything pointed to, everything that was speaking, especially the special revelation, is now here. Now even think about it today. Think of the greatest thing that you can think of. Sex, music, the beauty of nature. Any of these things and all of these things ultimately point to something greater. And that greater has come is the message to the Hebrew. However, the greatest thing that they could have thought of would have been the special revelation. Nature and everything that it offers is great and is awesome. But ultimately, the greatest thing is the scriptures and the scriptures point to the sun. Something greater indeed has come. And that something is a someone and that someone is the sun. The imperfect method, the incomplete method, is made perfect and complete in the Son. That's why we say to see the Son is to see God. The Son revealed is God revealed. In John 14, 9, Jesus Christ says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. It's because Jesus Christ perfectly shows who the Father is. What is noble about God is shown through Jesus Christ. Now, about the father-son dynamic that is placed here, even in humanistic terms, we know that you can know the father of someone to a certain degree by looking at his son. By looking at me, you can make a reasonable assessment about what kind of person my father is. Because I carry what has been passed down to me from my father. However, when we are talking about the son here, we are not talking about imperfect humans. God, who is infinitely perfect, has passed down perfectly to the perfectly obedient son, and he has carried that. 
So whatever God wants us to know about himself is found in Jesus Christ. This is why without Christ, it doesn't matter how much of the prophets you know, without Christ, you do not know God. But before the Son is identified as Jesus Christ, we are given a description of the Son. First of all, it says in verse 2 that he is the heir of all things. This is fascinating, not only because it's juxtaposed as him being the creator of all things, but because it is stating the relationship that he has with all things. The first thing that the writer wants us to understand is that the Son is connected to all things, which means he isn't simply a disconnected God as if he were a clockmaker who makes clocks and then leaves them be. This is not the picture of God that we see. There is a connection, indeed a deep connection, between the Son and the creation because he is to inherit all things. Now this can be confusing in the light of the confines of time that we are in, but the writer also says that he is the creator of the world. Now, when you look at the Greek translation of the world, the word for world isn't the usual word. The usual word for world is cosmos, or what we understand to be the cosmos. But the word that's used here is aeon. Aeon is translated as ages. He is the creator of the ages. That means he is the creator of all time and everything in it. Not only is the creator of all time and everything in it, he is the inheritor of it all. And this is a reassurance that whatever God has made and started, he will also complete and finish. What is staggering and fascinating about this statement is that the God who created space, time, and matter, the God who created it all came into space, time, and matter to dwell among us. This doesn't just show that he has a vested interest. It shows that God has a personal interest in creation to a level that no one ever before could have even imagined or dared to expect. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, it says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is an incredible thing that we are understanding, if you can truly understand this, that the Son has come into creation, come to us. You know, we celebrate New Year, but this is a civil holiday, meaning this is not a Christian liturgical calendar holiday, because right now, as I'm wearing a stole of white, it signifies that we are still in Advent or Christmas. We are still in the Christmas season until the day of Epiphany, which is January 6th. So for 12 days of Christmas, we even have a song on the first day of Christmas. So there's 12 days of Christmas, and we are still in that Christian holiday. And it's celebrating what God has done. Even at verse 2, we've just gone on to two verses. The reader, just listening to these words, would have been plunged into deep theological thoughts, which I haven't fully gone into, because if I did, it would take about 13 chapters. But he goes even deeper when we get to verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. 
So what is the relationship between Christ and God? Radiance suggests this, the bursting out of brilliant light, the showing of the glory of God, someone like what you would see at the break of dawn, how you would be able to see the rays of light breaking through the darkness of night to bring forth a new day. But the rays of sunlight have a personal quality in them that once the rays of light hit you, they also bring warmth to your body. And this is not to be lost as the radiance of the glory of God is a personal and relational experience that we receive in Jesus Christ. Now, if I were to radiate the glory of God, I also bear the exact imprint of his nature. This word for imprint is expressive of a stamp on a wax seal. That's the picture that you may have had when you read the Greek. You would use a stamp on a wax seal. You, then you would see the exact imprint on that wax seal as you would have had on the stamp. But as Philo points out, God's nature isn't something that can be copied or have any parallels. Meaning no one can be an exact representation of God. Otherwise you wouldn't be God. Yet this is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is declaring regarding the Son. He is the exact imprint of God. That means a lot of things, yes, but it does mean that in Jesus Christ, we have been provided a perfect and visible expression of who God is. How do you know God blank? How do you know God exists? How do you know God breathes? How do you know God lives? How do you know God, etc.? That question mark where we fill in that blank, the writer of Hebrews is showing us that we know God in Jesus Christ. And the Son being the exact nature as God, we know that God is because of who Jesus Christ is. Now, as we continue to think about this, I was thinking, I even mentioned to my wife, this, just these first few verses, it might sound a little erudite, it might sound a little too heady, but that's the point of the first four verses. The first four verses is supposed to just blow the listener away. It's like, what am I just listening to? How am I supposed to comprehend any of this? Because what I am listening to now seems impossible, seems too deep, seems too crazy for me to even start to think about. Where do I begin? But that's exactly how Hebrew starts. It's supposed to blow us away, to show us that what has been impossible for anyone to comprehend before is now possible because of Jesus Christ. That should get us excited. This should lead the thinker then into even deeper questions like, how can we differentiate between the Father and the Son then? Because he opens this whole can and he doesn't even bother to close it or explain it. It'll just have to stay open for now. And the end of verse 3, he says this, and he upholds the universe by the, power of, by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now this latter part of verse 3 is showing us the second part of the chiastic structure that I mentioned. This is what the writer employs, but it is also a progression that we are not to miss. Not only is it a chiastic structure that shows parallelism, but it's a progression at the same time. And the commentator, William Lane, he says this, the new clause ascribes to the Son the providential government of all created existence, which is the function of God himself. 
as the pre-creational wisdom of God. The Son not only embodies God's glory, but also reveals this to the universe as he sustains all things and bears them to the appointed end by his omnipotent word. Meaning the one who created all these things, all of space, time, and matter, he will sustain all of space, time, and matter by his government and by his rule. Even the most stable governments, if you look at history, all the authorities that have passed, they are shaken. They do not last. However, the one Christ sets will last because he is not only the creator, he is the sustainer. The son is the creator and the agent. And now we get to one of the most predominant themes of the letter, purification for sins. It's a religious quest from the beginning of any kind of history that you may have read or come across or tradition that you understand. No matter what religion you're a part of, or even if you say, I'm not part of any religion, I'm a religious, the age-old question does not disappear from you. Because the age-old question is this, what do you do about your guilt? What do you do about your guilt? Because the word for sin, hamartia, is sin, but it also means guilt from sin. Because there is a morality that we are sustained by. Even if you say you're an atheist, which is, which is a vast minority, but there is a moral code that you have. Because there is evil that you have to be able to identify. Otherwise, we would not have society. Some have said that because of the utter atrocities of mankind, they could not believe in a God. However, I would think, after listening to that, I would think that because of the present of clear evil, that there has to be a God. Because evil is definable. When we look at something evil, we exclaim, that's evil. When you look at millions and millions of people being exterminated at Auschwitz, when you look at the millions that have been put in slave labor camps, brutalized and murdered in the gulags under Stalin, you recognize that this is invariably truly evil that took place here. What you are recognizing then is you are recognizing a degree of the universal moral code because morality is given. Morality doesn't come from inside. Morality is given, meaning it comes from the outside. Morality must be given from the outside, otherwise humanity would not exist. In Exodus then, the moral code was given to us in the form of the Ten Commandments and the Pentateuch. God gives his people a moral code to live by, and by and large, any nation that has been able to survive for any length of time, it depended on how close they were to adhere to this moral code. This is a universal moral code. If you were not to adhere by, let's say, the commandment not to murder, you would not be able to have society because people would just be murdering each other. If you committed adultery anytime you wanted, any place you wanted, you would, not to have, you would not be able to have a family or any kind of structure that is stable so that children can grow and thrive and nations can continue. You need to a certain degree adhere to this universal moral code. 
to have any semblance of society and that morality is given to us by the outside. And even with a simple code like the Ten Commandments, when we break these commandments, what's happening is we are committing hamartia. We are committing sin. And with sin comes guilt. The age-old question is, what do you do with the guilt of sin? Today, there's a lot of talk about reparations, slavery. This is not new conversation. People in the Roman Empire had talked about reparations. People had then discovered thinking and continuing to think that no matter how well-intentioned, what reparations will never deal with is the age-old question. It will never deal with the guilt of sin. Sin can never be dealt with with the power of man. You can have as much religious devotion as you want. You can put as much self-effort as you want. You can suppress your desires to a degree where it's monk level. However, you cannot deal with the guilt of sin. This is why this is so pivotal after explaining the characteristics and the nature of the Son, the first thing that the writer of Hebrews says is what the Son has done. And what the Son has done is he has taken care of the guilt of sin. This is in the past tense. Jesus has dealt with sin. It is complete. And after that, he is exalted to the right hand. Traditionally, it's talking about a place of honor. Now, he's not only exalted, it says he is seated. And that means at least two things when you are seated. When you are seated, it means you have completed the work. You sit when you finish the work. And number two, when you sit, you rule. The word for session that we have for elders is to be seated. And when you sit, when you, sit you rule. Rulers are seated when they give their judgment. That's why when you have a judge come in, everybody stands and the judge sits first because that's, that's signifying that the judge will give their ruling or their judgment. And this is what Jesus has done. And verse 4, our final verse says, Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited, is more excellent than theirs. Now, this verse has two purposes. It concludes the chiasm and the structure of the preamble, but it also gives us a segue and sets the scene for the following verses. After all that's been said, the son's superiority to angels should be a no-brainer. So why are angels mentioned? And now there is speculation and a probable view that there is great Jewish interest in angels. And some of you have had great interest in angels and have asked me about that. And maybe even we were thinking about dealing with it in the podcast. And some sects of the Jewish tradition had even said back in the ancient days that the Messiah would be lower than Michael, the archangel. So what is an angel? An angel also means messenger. Messenger means sent. Sent from who? Angel means sent from God. Angels, though, were present before the creation of the world, and although they themselves are created beings, they are still mysterious beings that we don't know too much about. However, in explaining Christ's superiority, superiority over the angel, 
the writer points out that the name that the son has inherited. What's in a name? And so people these days don't put too much weight in the meaning of a name other than maybe a name needing to sound good or name being unique when you name your children. But folk in the ancient world didn't care about uniqueness more than they did its meaning. The modern saying, what's in a name, may not apply fully here with that same weight. But for names, back in the ancient day, it meant as a means of distinguishing people. Names were a means of saying something about those people. A name described the nature of someone. And so what is the name that he has obtained, the excellent name that is the son? The son shows that he is the most closest and intimate relationship that anyone could have with God or the father. Angel, meaning messenger, is indeed a close and honored relationship with the master, but the son is that much more exalted and that much more closer. And it is in the excellent name of Jesus Christ that we now, and we understand that we now pray. Those that can pray in Jesus' name have the privilege to implore the Father boldly through the authority of the Son. Because the only one that can come into the presence or the immediate presence of the Father is someone like the Father, which is the Son. It's in the name of Christ, the great Lagos, we express praise and adoration. It's in the name of Christ, our atonement, we can ask for the forgiveness of sins. It's in the name of Christ, our great shepherd, that we can give thanks for the steadfast love that we receive. It's in the name of Christ, our great provider, that we can ask for ourselves and others mercy and supplication. This is long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And we can come to God now by that excellent name, the excellent name of Jesus Christ. Praise be to God and glory be to him. Let's pray.